0: Before I decided to focus this podcast on sharing stories of women over 40, I recorded a series of conversations last year to test the waters for both myself and for you. We originally launched the series in May and June of last year. With each episode, my heart swelled a little more at the idea of centering my platform on women over 40. The conversations around aging were growing louder and louder, but they still seemed focused on health, wellness, the silver hair movement, fashion, and menopause. And while I was thrilled to see more content created for me and my peers, I didn't see as much that helped us consider our futures. I wanted to talk about what was next. I wanted to talk about purpose and unfulfilled dreams while we had experience behind us and more time ahead of us. I wanted to talk about how our roles were slowly shifting as children were growing and our daily responsibilities were changing. I wanted to talk about reexamining our current roles and professions and pursuing those things buried deep, deep inside of us, waiting to see the light of day, waiting to influence and impact the world around us. I was grateful to each woman who said yes to talking about their age and sharing their own windy path to finding their current venture and themselves in the process. Please join me in listening to this OG series that led to the relaunch and rebrand of this podcast and our entire platform. I dare you to listen to these conversations and not consider your age to be an asset instead of an excuse. Actually, I double dare you. Pursuing your future doesn't end at 40. In fact, it may mark the beginning of knowing who you are, what you're capable of, and what you really want. But knowing what's next and how to get there can be a challenge especially when old narratives play on repeat. Liberty Road is here to share stories so that you can consider your possibilities, pursue your purpose, and move into your future with intention. I'm your host, Netta Jones, and we're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Well, hello, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty for Her. And we're so excited to have Maha Ibrahim with us today. I cannot wait for you guys to hear from her. In a conversation I had with her probably, I don't know, two months ago or so, I walked away with so much information on something that I should already know and something that I've been steeped in for 20 years So I'm excited for you guys to learn from her as well. Maha, welcome, welcome to Liberty for Her. We're so excited to have you and hear from you. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you do and kind of give us the background?
1: Sure. Thank you so much for having me and thank you to all your listeners. I am a general partner with Canaan Partners, which is a venture fund in the Bay Area. We have a history of about 33 years investing in both technology and healthcare. We invest in startups, so that's startups from five people to 25 people, some with revenue, some without, some with product market fit, and some without. It really just depends on the space. We're early stage, as I mentioned, we like to take board seats, and I invest particularly across both enterprise and consumer deals. So typically these days when a venture person starts, in my industry, they start out in a specific sector. But given that I've been in the industry for as long as I have, and I'm probably a veteran slash dinosaur, I consider myself a generalist.
0: I think that's about it. Well, let me first explain, because our listeners are used to having female founders on this program. But I wanted you on here because I consider you to be a female finder. (laughs) You're one of the ones that can really take some of these small businesses, I'll say, and take them to the next level. Before we get into all the things we're doing right and wrong in order to get in front of you, I just want to know a little bit more about what you do. For people especially who don't understand the VC world, I think there's a lot of confusion around money and where it comes from and what that looks like in terms of percent of company when people go and get money. And I want to divide that up later on and we'll ask you that question. But tell us about kind of your experience leading up to where you are now. Like what made you who you are today? How does one get into this world?
1: Oh, my gosh, you're asking so many questions. So we'll get into (laughs) how venture works in a little bit. But as I mentioned, I've been with my firm for 20 years. Let me start... I'll reverse a little bit, but let me start from there. When I joined my firm, I was the only female in the firm. And we now, I'm proud to say, have 40% of our investment professionals as wow. females. And in addition to that, about 25% of our founders are female. And there is an absolute correlation, right? When you have more diverse investors at the table assessing deals, you will get a more diverse set of founders. I fundamentally believe that. My firm fundamentally believes that. And thankfully, my industry, which has largely been white male for the last several decades, is waking up to that as well. There are a number of female-led organizations within venture that are promoting the need to have more females and more, frankly, people of color around the investment table for that reason. Our industry has, for far too long, left out minorities. Mm. Not Mm. intentionally, but it's a byproduct of who's assessing the deals in the first place. So Mm. that's first. I have been at my firm, as I mentioned, for 20 years. Prior to that, I wanted to be an academic. So I grew up outside of Boston. I like you. I'm a child of Egyptian immigrants to the country. and um, I grew up in Boston, and it was really cold there. So I made it my mission, given that my mom worked for Digital Equipment Corporation. I made it my mission during February breaks to follow her to California, where she was in business meetings in Palo Alto. And I said, oh, my God, I've got to go to Stanford. It's warm here. It's beautiful. So I made that my life's mission at the time. So I did. I met my now husband there. We went back to Boston for graduate school. I have a PhD in economics from MIT. I wanted to be an academic. I wanted to be a professor. And then going through that process, it just, academics is a very solitary lifestyle. And that just wasn't something that at that time, in my mid-20s, I was ready to sign up for. So I went into business. I worked for BCG for a little while, Boston Consulting Group. I then went to a startup, Quest Communications, in the late 90s. I was lucky enough to have them, as a 28-year-old woman, promote me to Vice President of Business Development. My role was largely interfacing with startups. And from there, it was just a natural entry point into venture, where I am today.
0: Okay, so... 28 years old, taking something like that on, did you feel prepared for it or did you just lean into what you didn't know and and kind of figure it out as you were moving along?
1: I don't know if you feel this way, but the yes. 20-somethings <laughs> these days are so much more prepared and knowledgeable than I was, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we have yeah. analysts in our firm and I am just astounded at their everything, right? They are smarter. They're more driven. They're more prepared. They're just awesome. I lucked into it. I leaned in. I mean, Quest Communications, when I joined, it was a startup telecommunications company. And I'd say that I knew how to pick up a phone and that was about it. So I had to learn on the fly and it it was just drinking from a fire hose.
0: Yeah. I asked that question because I imagine that so many of the people that you're working with need that empathetic sort of history that you bring to the table. Like, I remember when I didn't know everything, but that doesn't mean that you can't move forward in whatever your venture is. And with our support and backing and, you know, infrastructure, all the things that you bring to the table, I'm sure that's a big relief for them. But it must be nice for those Companies to know that the person who is walking alongside, has a seat at the table in terms of a board seat, is bringing money to the table, is somebody who has that sort of institutional memory of, I remember when I didn't know. I know what that's like.
1: Yes. And at the same time, the empathy, I think it's more placed in the fact that these startups are also unique and they have their own stories. And the only person who's writing that story is the founder CEO along with their team. Mm -hmm. So what I really have to do is put my experience on the shelf a, a little bit, not totally, but a little bit, and really understand the context of this specific startup that I'm dealing with at any given time. The markets are different, the timing is different, the trends are different. I have to acknowledge that. And I think in my business, as you get more tenured and tenured and tenured, there is a slight, if not bigger, possibility that you err towards being more risk-averse because you've seen so many failures. Like, Mm. oh, that didn't work, so it's not going to work today. Webvan didn't work, so Instacart can't work. We had that discussion internally when we were looking at Instacart in their seed round. A web van didn't work. What's going to make Instacart work? Well, guess what? Mobile now. There's a need for it. People are just much more comfortable having people deliver. You don't have the warehouses. So things like that, It's, it's more than empathy is what I'm trying to say. We have to be optimistic. We have to be understanding that the world is constantly changing.
0: I have a question in here, and I'll just ask it now because you led into that well. When you're looking at companies, what are the things that excites you about a new venture? Is it the founders? Is it the market? Is it your enthusiasm based on, this is something we've never seen, we want to be the first ones out of the gate? Like, is it the idea itself? What is it?
1: You're asking these big questions, (laughs) which is so awesome. By far, the thing that we look at most is market. Mm -hmm. And I'll go into more detail on that. So let's say we see thousands of deals every year, and that's as a firm. We end up doing maybe 10 or 15. The chances of getting venture funded are low, right? What we want to look at is, is this company and the idea, do they have what it takes to become a multiple billion dollar company? Is the market big enough or will it be big enough? And is the timing now Are the variables in the environment, are the ingredients there so that this company can become huge? And then we go to the team. Is the team driven enough? Are they capable enough of not only executing, but also creating that vision and creating that story and telling that story of why this can be huge? You need founders that can place the bets and execute, but also carry along the vision that all employees and customers kind of buy into.
0: That's a lot. I mean, you're looking at a lot of things, and then you're looking in a sort of magic ball as well, because understanding who would have known a year ago, we're right in the middle of this, that what would have been in front of us would have drastically changed the needs of the market, the capacity for the founders, perhaps, depending on what they're doing, so you're also having to look into an unknown and base it on some data and some gut and some combination of, of of all those things, I assume, right?
1: More gut and luck. And again, I think as you become more experienced in this industry, you realize that so much of your success, and this is a real bummer when you realize it, is based on luck and timing in my business. It's less based on education and pedigree and all of those kind of things that you put on a resume. It's more just, was I in the right place at the right time? Did I prepare myself to do that? I'll also say that as an early stage investor, I lose more than I win. Hmm. I am going in understanding that I'm taking risks that will largely fail. And my bet is not that nine out of 10 of them double or triple in valuation. My bet is that, let's say eight out of 10 of them either go to zero or get my money back and that two out of 10 or one out of 10 become the next Instacart or become the next, you know, DoorDash or you name it.
0: Right. Wow. That's interesting as a founder to hear that we come to you thinking that it's a done deal. If we can get this kind of money we are the next Instacart or DoorDash. And you're telling me, no, not even. Like we're a part of the process and it's luck on both ends. And I'm assuming it's, you know, all the things you said that it's a bummer when you find out it's not education, it's not even data-driven, it's luck. That's for you finding them as well as them becoming the next fill in the blank.
1: That's right. And again, I mean, I want to point out how – Venture is different from other segments of the market. We are not looking to get our money back or get our money back with 15% interest. We're Mm -hmm. looking to get our money back times 10 or times 20. And as such, that market size and market timing analysis, gut, is paramount. And then I'm looking at, do I have the team and can I put team members around it that can take this company to that level.
0: So what's that formula for us, for those of us who don't watch uh, Shark Tank? (laughs) (laughs) What's that? I mean, you're 10, 20 times. So you're telling me if we're looking for, I'm just playing with numbers here that are probably less relative to what your experience is and more relative to what I hear from the types of founders that we work with. So somebody needs $3 million, would you even take somebody that needed $3 million? $3
1: million to get to the next stage where they could raise more and raise more and raise more. There's nothing wrong with those types of companies, right? Most companies are like that, but venture is a different scale. And by the way, there's other scales that are bigger than venture where we're looking to put in over time 10 to 15 to 20 million dollars into these companies. Mm. And by the way, when they exit, for the most part, and exit, I mean through an acquisition or through a public offering, for the most part, these companies aren't profitable, particularly in 2020 or 2021, where the public markets are valuing growth over everything. It's less about hearing a story of how you get to profitability in venture in my asset class. Yeah. Right. It's more about how you cause this company to go from a million dollars in sales to a hundred million dollars in sales in five years. I'm just using that as an example. You don't need to do that. But
0: no, no, I appreciate it. And what I want to be clear on, too, and thank you for saying that it's specific to you, that profitability at that level is very different than I don't want A startup or a young brand who's got one boutique to think that they don't need to show profitability year after year after year. Earnings are important. And I want to make the distinction between monetizing a hobby and what you just said. Totally. Yeah. So I appreciate that you owned it in your kind of space, in your world and with the companies you're working with. I'm going to go back to the formula question because I think it's a good one for people to have. And then I want to make the distinction between You said there's something even kind of next level in terms of amount of capital being raised or capital being put into a company, VC, I want to talk about angel funds, things like that. But what is a kind of a loose formula we should hang on to when we think about investment, when we think about going to, and I'm going to make this specific to your world and then later I'll ask you about something that's a little more general. But specific to your world, if somebody thinks, because a lot of us think that venture is in our future, if we think that venture is in our future, what's a formula we should just hang on to in our head to be realistic about, why am I even bothering this person? Because the reality is due to the market, due to my idea, due to me and my team, whatever it is, that's not really where I'm heading.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That is why we turn down the bulk of the companies that we turn down. Again, market size. Do we see this company becoming big? When you go to venture, in that first round, and there's always multiple rounds, not always. The plan is to have you raise multiple rounds of capital for growth. You will give up, you will sell 25 to 30% of your company to me. And then in subsequent rounds, you'll sell another, depending on how you grow, another 20% and on and on and on until there is some sort of exit. I am looking after an eight to 10 year period on average for an exit. I am looking for you to make shareholder value of 10 to 12 to 20x my money so that... $3 $3 million that I put in to get 20% of your company. I'm looking for the company to bring back 10 to 20x of that
0: over a decade, let's say. Yeah, I think that's really good perspective. It's good for us to know and for our listeners to know. I think that's the good news, actually, because then we know that where to go get the appropriate amount of money for the appropriate amount of return and with the right support and scaffolding. I think some people feel like, oh, I'm never gonna get venture funded. Well, there are plenty of success stories that are not venture funded, and you're not, that's not the business that you have. That's not the growth opportunity that you have.
1: Most um, companies if- are not venture funded. And I don't mean to dissuade <clears throat> your listeners from that, But it's important to understand the reality, which is if you are looking for venture financing, even in today's market where money is everywhere, I mean, I live in Silicon Valley, you can raise $10 million with an idea right now. That's a gross generalization, but you get the point. Um, You will talk to probably 20 to 25 people and get turned down by 24 of them. That should be the expectation. And as a founder, particularly a venture-backed founder, where you're talking about an idea that's kind of crazy and half-baked, that mental part of it is everything. Because you will hear no so many more times than you will hear yes.
0: Yeah. I think the good news again there, talk about an optimist, but the good news there is that one that finally says yes is the one that gets the vision, is the one that gets you, is the one that gets the opportunity. There's something about that one that is exactly what you need.
1: I say Um, that a lot to my founders, right, as they're looking to raise more capital. You only need one. But to the point you're just making, if you're going to sell more equity from your company and give that person a board seat and make that person a shareholder, that mind meld has to be there, right? Yes, they believe in the vision, but you should do your diligence on them as well to understand how they operate and how they think when things go sideways or when you have a bad quarter or two or when COVID hits, right? How do these people act? How do they respond in crises? And that will help you a lot.
0: Well, when you just said that eight to 10 year period, I thought, oh my gosh, all of these founders who have stayed away from a partnership because they don't want the complication are walking right into that. And that's something they need to be mindful of. It's truly a relationship. It's not just a check that's being written and then you go away. You're a part of that. And again, by design, it's there to support them.
1: I would also say that in 2021 and 20, that that is being lost right now because again, there's so much capital in the system in Silicon Valley that founders are able to raise money relatively quickly. They're not taking the time to feel out the relationship and determine whether or not they can work with these people because they don't have to, right? They can make a decision very quickly. They can make a decision to sell 10% of their company or 20% of their company in a three-day period, which is very yeah. different than let's say four five, ten five,
0: 10 years ago. Is there any benefit to that for the founder or are they left alone to dry? I mean, it, in some ways it's good news. It's like, oh, I have some independence; They're not watching my every move or on top of me. But then I would think, well, you're not getting the scaffolding that you may have been looking for.
1: And time will tell. Time will tell. Yeah. As I mentioned, okay. my business is so much about timing, right? Yeah. If we go into recession in a couple of years from now, you know, we shall see what happens to some of these companies that have raised a ton of money at very, very inflated prices who now don't necessarily have the growth to support it. But then again, I would have said that 10 years ago, and we've been in a bull market for 13 years. So keep going until yeah, so, until yeah. the music stops.
0: You've talked a lot about 20 and 21 with regard to your specific experience, not necessarily everything that's happened in the market, what have you seen that's drastically changed as a result of COVID? And I'm sure it's so many things, but maybe were there any surprises?
1: Yes, there've been a lot of surprises. The first is just on a personal level, how quickly we've adapted to this medium. I'm assessing founders. I'm assessing companies over Zoom. Everything used to be in person. My business is more than writing a check. It's all about networking. I'm constantly meeting people. I mean, that is probably 60% of my job is having meetings, one-on-ones and conversations. And that has, it's become much more efficient. You don't get that you know, body language stuff that I look for, but it's much more efficient and we've adapted to it. Another positive spin is how quickly companies have re-architected themselves post-COVID. So Mm -hmm. March, April, May were disasters for some parts of the portfolio, and yet they were also huge momentum boosts for some parts of the portfolio as well. On both sides, they had to adapt, whether you're seeing hyper growth. Oh, my God, how do I deal with this? You know, I need to get all hands on deck. How do I deal with the culture issues? Because I can't see my employees. And then for the companies that suffered during that time, it was a lot harder. But I've just been so impressed by how they have adapted, cut costs, done what they have to do to fight another day.
0: Did anybody pivot so much that it wasn't the company you invested in?
1: Sure, but that always happens.
0: (laughs) Okay, okay. so that's part of the expectation, COVID or not.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of my biggest outcomes was a mobile gaming company. And it started out as a LinkedIn version 2, which has nothing to do with mobile gaming. It then went to become a chat app on top of Facebook. And then its third pivot was in the mobile gaming space.
0: And that's just based on the, the technology allowed for those things or the way the users kind of yes, taught them. Yes. Perhaps there's something else here.
1: And how the founders were nimble and driven and just didn't give up. I mean, Slack wow. is another example of that. Slack, which I'm sure some of your, your oh, listeners yeah. use, um, you know, Slack started off as a gaming company. It did? It did. Wow. Is that one of yours? No, no, no. Or within your firm? Slack was a failed gaming company. And it pivoted.
0: Well, there's, there's hope for us yet, ladies, <laughs> all those who are listening. So I have to ask you before we jump into the next section, what are the things that you love the most about your job? I mean, you just said like so much of it. I think you said 60% is meeting people and networking. And now it's relegated or I, I don't want to put that in your, uh, in your mouth, but you're, you're now doing all of this kind of networking on Zoom has that taken away from your love of the job or have you found a new love? But answer the first question. I could talk to you all day with multiple questions, but what is it that you love about the work that you're doing?
1: So I am not a founder. I know I'm not a founder. I don't have the risk appetite and I'm just going to use a poker or roulette analogy to put everything on one number on red 18. And that's what founders do. They, sacrifice personally, professionally, financially on every metric they are sacrificing to do what they're doing. I don't have that in me. So what I love so much is getting a front row seat to see people who are willing to do all of that and execute in the face of everyone telling them no, yet they're keeping on going. And they're keeping on and they're keeping on and they're keeping. It's remarkable. I mean, there's there's definitely a human psychology part of it that intrigues me so much that people are willing to just keep going and going and going. In addition to that, what I love about my job is just the constant education. Mm-hmm. I am looking at new businesses, probably see two to three new ones a day. Wow. And it's just really cool. Again, a front row seat to new economies, new industries,
0: disruption, everything. That's the academic in you. Yeah. To come alive. Totally. Life. That's very cool. I have to say that the your assessment of what it takes to be a founder sounds a little like insanity and sounds about right. There's a little bit of that kind of personality or that through line that I feel like has to be there for people who are going to stick with it through the highs and the lows for the long haul, pulling other people into that vision. It takes that sort of tenacity and confidence and insanity. Being a founder, I can say that. I can say that. And then I just, I want to ask before we go again into this next section, because I think this is really important. You had talked about the statistics around your specific firm relative to women, relative to how many people work in the firm, relative to how many people that you're investing in. And it's a big complaint right now, right? Everybody's saying there's not enough venture-backed female founders or or companies that are female-founded. If you had to say, and earlier you said it's based on the people that were looking at these propositions, like there weren't people at the table looking at, you know, viewing it in the right way or in the way that would allow for more of those minority uh, opportunities to come to pass. What do you think, what would be your complaint from an insider? Because that's what we see looking in, but what's your complaint as an insider? or what's your reasoning as an insider for why this hasn't come to fruition or why it's so slow to happen. It's kind of happening now. And I think some of us are even skeptical and saying, is it really happening or is it happening because they're filling in a blank? Oh, I need a minority. Oh, I need, you know, tell us, Maha, what do you think? (laughs) With respect to the last part, I think if the door is
1: open, you go through it, right? For so long, the door has not been open to people of color or minorities or women, and it is, it's open right now. So I don't care how you get in, you get in. And then you make a mark for yourself. The worry that I have had, and this is to the point of the tokenism that you're mentioning is that these people do get hired and then that they're put in the corner. They're not helped, they're not guided, they're not advised, but we gotta work it. We gotta work hard. And I don't think that any of those people are there because they just want to be there. They're going to work their tails off to be successful. And as somebody who's more tenured in my business, I think it's important, and so do my peers at other firms who've been there for a long time, think it's important to help younger folks in the industry perform and be successful. Hopefully
0: give them you know, a thumb on the scale in terms of luck. Oh, that's cool. I like that. It's a quotable for sure right there. So thank you for giving us kind of an inside look into your world. I appreciate it. And I think it gives us context for going into this next part of the interview, which is really an education on I'm going to move away from VC specifically and just raising money. Can you give us, and you had made reference earlier to there's something even more than early stage VC that's like the next level. Can you give us some of the Options for raising money, so I'll give you a scenario. I think many of our listeners are in the one million dollar, two million dollar range in revenue. Some are startups, they're brand new. They have an idea. They've put it into practice. It could be a service. You know, they're a consultant or a coach or something like that. They're teaching courses. What are the kinds of money they should be looking? for we hear things like angel investors we hear friends and family we hear loans we hear different kinds of loans we hear vc give us something on a continuum like where do we start and where does this go where does it end
1: so fundamentally again my business pe firms who are bigger than ours growth equity they're looking for growth We are looking for businesses that have the possibility of going from 1 to 10 to 50 to 100 in a four-year period. That rarely happens, by the way, but that's what we're looking for. Businesses that can do that are inherently leverageable. They have something in their model or their product that allows them to scale at that rate, whether it's virality, as you're seeing on some of these consumer apps, or whether it is based on a usage model that you see in some enterprise companies. Services businesses are tough in terms of the ability to get funded by folks like us because they aren't leverageable. They're body businesses, largely. They don't scale, they scale, but it's not like you can turn one body into 10. You have the same input and get kind of the same output. That's, again, a gross overgeneralization. But in terms of access to capital, those types of businesses, retail businesses, for the most part, brick and mortar retail businesses, the access to capital there is tough, right? It becomes banks, it becomes loans, it becomes friends and family, just any way you can, (laughs) credit cards, Mm -hmm. any way you can to just feed the beast, if you have a company that has been longstanding and profitable and you want to exit for whatever reason or you want to sell equity to, there's a class of funding sources there in, it's a class of private equity
0: mm-hmm.
1: that invests in businesses like that. And what they do is either say, hey, continue to run the business and now I own 40% of it. Or I want to make your business more efficient and I'm going to go in and do that and then eventually we'll exit the business. So there's a variety of sources. For companies that are much bigger, higher growth, the access to capital is really easy. I mean, that's, you know, you can get it from any source you want, frankly.
0: And so you talked about, I'll just take the example of the brick and mortar. Let's take an example of a, brick-and-mortar, luxury retail, children's boutique. I have somebody very specific in mind here. And they have three locations in prime areas. Profitability, I think, has been questionable. But I think profitability is questionable because their infrastructure has been a mess. Where do they go?
1: So that is a specific question around retail. Mm -hmm. And there are a specific cast of retail-focused investors who would look at something like that if the plan was to grow from three stores to 20 to 25. If this person, and I'll assume it's a she, if she can lay out profitability per store. And it becomes an ever-increasingly interesting model if there is a an online component to it? Yes. If there's a branding component to it. Yep. So there's not a ton of investors there, but there are certainly enough in that PE world, small yeah. private equity or large.
0: And how do we find them? Do we Google them? Mhm. You can go okay. through banks,
1: you can Google. The retail space is interesting because a couple of years ago there was this merging of online and offline retail that people were mm-hmm. investing in, venture people were investing in, private equity was investing in. It's moved to higher margin products. Mm-hmm. Um, it's moved to direct-to-consumer products and brands. So less wholesale, more retail, D 2 C. You have your own brand. You can commercialize it online and offline. So I think if it's a wholesale model, it becomes more difficult, frankly. Yeah. One of the other things I'll touch on and and this is specific to retail generally is when we look at retail businesses, we look at three things. And this is venture, this is not private equity. Retail, we're thinking, can this be amazon away? Is this mm-hmm. something that Amazon will, you know, eat your lunch in if they focus on it? Two, are the average order values high enough to sustain growing out of business online? So are the margins big enough? And three, and this is probably the most important is, is there a hook that keeps people coming back and coming back and coming back without me having to acquire you as a customer over and over and over again?
0: The lesson you just gave to 50% of our listeners is so spot on and hopefully will change the trajectory of their business. I think this is the kind of education that people at the level of our listener need to be hearing because- it informs the decisions they're making about their businesses. You can't wholesale say retail's dead. You have to look at what retail is and isn't and what you can make it in your business. And so I love what you're saying because I think it really gives us something to sink our teeth into, the collective us. I'm obviously not in the retail space myself, but.
1: Particularly on the margins. I mean, the margins within retail can be very attractive and they can really suck right? So it depends on what sector you're in. I want to double click a little bit more on that hook that I mentioned. There are a multitude of different business models that people have tried out to keep that customer coming back and coming back. We've seen flash sales. We've seen subscription models. There's Mm -hmm. a variety or uh, perishable, like an Instacart. Mm -hmm. Again, I need to reload and reload and reload because I eat the food that's coming in. And DoorDash is a great example of that. And some of the business models there have been appropriate for the product. Some of them haven't. And so you get consumer fatigue. Mm. I don't need 10 beauty samples on my bathroom sink every month. Right. Right. After four months, my sink is crowded. I'm all set. Exactly. I'm good. So think about products and models that are unique and that fit with your specific set of products.
0: Once again, spot on information. I mean, I think it's the kind of stuff that we can really sink our teeth into. So I appreciate that. Good. And also, let me just say another thing with regard to angel investing and friends and family. I'm just going to ask you because I've given my own answer, but we've got an expert here. So let's ask the expert. It used to be you and I are about the same age. I'm a few years older than you, I think. But it used to be when people said, Angel investing, it sort of meant friends and family. What it meant all those early people that were gonna help you to get to the next level. And now angel investing has become more formalized, institutionalized. So is there something between friends and family? We know what that is. We're going to Uncle Buck and, you know, Auntie So and so and and we're gonna raise the money. But now there's something between, and I'm talking about capital raising, I'm not talking about loans, not talking about banks. Is there something in that angel investing category that makes it a fit for us? For example, you talked about private equity that are small and specific to retail in the example we talked about. Is that the case for angel investing as well, that they're industry specific?
1: There's the larger angels that we're seeing now, and again, my world is in Silicon Valley in New York, the larger angels do have a focus for sure because it's their experience base, but they're also smart enough to recognize that in order to make money, you need a portfolio approach and you need to go outside of what your specific area Mm. of expertise is. So the answer is kind of, but not really, right? There are angel investors that only invest in enterprise software. There's angel investors that only invest in telco stuff. But for the most part, Folks are generalist at that angel level.
0: Okay. Is that a good place to start? Let me ask that as well. Yes,
1: I think so. And it's a great place to hone your vision. Angel investors like VCs, for the most part, they're looking for these outsized returns, right? I want to be the first money into Airbnb. Mm -hmm. How do I do that? I do that by networking as much as I can and also really having my ears open to listen to the vision of the CEO and the founder you have to paint a vision that can be huge and at that angel level it's less about what you've executed so far it's more about the story that you can tell that's
0: awesome and i think helps us to know again where do we go first where do we start on this how much do you think i'm going to take you and vcs out of this question, but how much do angels and even friends and family or banks want to see in terms of your personal investment? Again, it used to be they want to see that the founder hasn't eaten in two years. They want to see that they've leveraged everything that they have. And then I've heard people say, no, we don't want burnt out founders. We want founders that can be sustained so that they can grow the business and do the work that they need to do. What's your two cents on that?
1: I agree with that. It's just too hard to be a founder. And granted, there've been so many small businesses that have been grown in the United States, and that's awesome. But we're looking for something that will be massive, right? Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, especially in a nine to 10 year roadmap, we need to have founders that can pay their mortgage. Mm -hmm. right so i i don't want you mortgaging everything for the business
0: and you don't need to is also what i'm hearing if you're taking if you're taking
1: venture money right if you're doing it by yourself then yeah access to capital is what's in your bank account and you know who are your friends
0: yeah yeah is there any rule of thumb on how much to give friends and family it could be in terms of, you know, like I often say, you can take the money from them, but don't set yourself up in a relationship where they need to be a part of the company. What do they know? Like, unless they know something, and that's a different story. Any, any thoughts on that?
1: I agree wholeheartedly with that. I'll yeah. also say that if you're going to take money from friends, family, whomever, make it clear to them that this money is already gone. They should assume that it's a lottery ticket. Mm. They should not be coming and calling you every week to see how the business is.
0: <laughs> as fun as that is. <laughs> right. These are
1: very long-term, high-risk businesses. So only give you money if they're willing to lose it.
0: That's. I think, again, that's a great approach. A hard thing to say, but it's a good way for people to approach the situation. Like, this is helping me to get to zero so that I can go to the next step versus this is helping me.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, I personally will not invest my firm's money into friends. Yeah. I mean, I have a ton of friends. I live in Silicon Valley. I have a ton of friends that started companies. I don't want to set up that relationship so that it becomes a business relationship. And at some point in time, interests diverge.
0: Yeah. That seems like a great way to protect that. And also just a best practice in terms of creating boundaries And takes us nicely into this next question, which is if somebody's sitting at a dinner party next to you and they find out what you do, and so they're like, hey, Maha, I've got this idea. What's the thing, assuming you're in the mood for this, what's the thing that will really spark an interest? This person isn't a friend, so we've made that distinction. They're just somebody you met at a dinner party. What's the thing that you might hear or you need to hear in order to be like, call me on Monday. Here's my card.
1: So the same answer that I gave before, and I will say this until the day I retire, market, Mm. market, market. I need to believe that you are in a big enough market to make me billions of dollars.
0: Billions with a B.
1: Yeah. I mean, it rarely happens, right? And we are in venture. It's venture capital. It is inherently risk capital. I'm looking for businesses that can be huge. The bulk of them don't turn out that way. But the ones that do are awesome. So I can't go into it thinking that this is going to be an average outcome. Because if it's going to be an average outcome, that's the expected value. It's probably going to be, in reality, a less than average outcome. I need to believe it can be huge. So that's the one thing. If it's coupled with that and I view you in our interactions as being high integrity, I view you in that initial interaction as being trustworthy and driven, then great. But I don't want to sign up myself or my firm to work with somebody for a 10-year period who I don't feel is initially trustworthy for obvious reasons.
0: Right, right. Which I also think the good news there is that if we bring our whole selves, you can see through what somebody says, a script that they've read. um, If they read the latest 10 things to say to win a VC, that's not a real book, but I assume that information's out there. I mean, you can see through that. And so what you want is for somebody to bring their whole selves, to be honest about where the company is, where it isn't, and then you can figure out what the opportunity is, if there's opportunity. The market's the market. That has nothing to do with the personality or the integrity of the person, right? Maybe their view on reality, but nothing to do with they are as a person.
1: Can I twist what you're saying a little bit?
0: Please twist away.
1: I don't want your whole self. (laughs) Oh, shh. Maha. (laughs) Not quite. So being a CEO founder is incredibly lonely. I know that. And you are fraught with insecurities you're fraught with questions i mean it's there but it can't be like on your face plastered on your forehead because if I'm, in the, yeah. if I'm in a board meeting with you and i see insecurity dripping off your forehead i'm going to be like oh my god i need to fire you right you need to have that outward presence of i am the shit i'm going to make this huge yeah. and yet you need to be dispassionate enough to have the dialogue with me of you know it's not working Not, I don't know what to do. It's not working, but it's not working. And so I'm going to go in this direction. I want you to be insecure, but I don't want you to be insecure at that guttural level that I know everyone has and that I know is part of your whole self.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does make sense. It makes sense. And it shows your experience because that only comes with experience. Like, what does it mean when Netta just said, hold self, wait a minute I need people to be able to compartmentalize. It's not that they aren't those things. I appreciate you saying it's not that I know that we're all insecure, but it's being able to place those things in their proper order so that we can move the business forward. Because at the end of the day, it's about the business. It's not about the two of you being best friends or you really thinking they're an awesome person. I mean, that makes it nice to work with, but it's about the business.
1: And I often, Um, particularly these days, am... Highly recommending that my CEO founders get coaches, have some sort of confidant. Because again, that insecurity or those questions at that kind of fundamental level, they're there. And every CEO founder wrestles with them. But they also can't talk to me about all of that. And I want them to be able to work through those issues with someone. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm completely spacing on the name. You might be able to help me. But there's a great podcast and book. It's literally on my bedside table. And it's The guy, they call him the CEO whisperer. He's up in Silicon Valley. He also has a place in Boulder. Jerry
1: Colonna. Yes.
0: Jerry Colonna. I think you're right. Yeah. He has a podcast and you hear him interviewing these, some CEOs that you'll know. And they're going back to like mommy, daddy issues. It's for real. And he's getting them in a position where they can make the distinction between what they need to own and work on in their personal life and what is about the business. And even how those business decisions are informed by those insecurities and shouldn't be. It's brilliant. So I recommend people listen to it because it's exactly what you're saying. It's giving perspective to that. And you've talked about this billion-dollar idea. We constantly hear the word disruption or unicorn. If 100 people who are listening right now all think they're the unicorn, everybody thinks what they're doing is going to disrupt, what's the reality in that percentage of true unicorns out of 100 or true disruptors out of 100?
1: It's very few, but the chances are a lot higher in 2020, 2021 than they were five years ago. I mean, the valuations right now in the public markets are crazy right we're at an all-time high in the indices mm. and businesses that were worth even look at the biggest ones look at the fang stocks or look at tesla right we never saw companies that were worth trillion dollars mm. and you know i'd say that it is such a good time to be a founder because there's so much capital on the sidelines wanting to be invested into companies and the dilution that you'll take is just a lot less than you would have taken five years ago or 10 years ago.
0: And when you're talking about this, are you talking about specifically VC companies? Or are we talking about, does that all translate, what's happening in the greater sort of markets, does that translate into what's happening with angels or small private equity?
1: It does, it does. I mean, my business is very robust, very active right now. What it doesn't translate to, unfortunately, and if I could put that in capital letters and bolded, I would, is Main Street, right? We've seen, yeah. unfortunately, through COVID, this massive wealth transfer from Main Street small business to Amazon, yeah. Walmart, et cetera. I don't know when that comes back. And it sucks. And it is going to have massive deleterious effects on our economy in the
0: long term. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we've seen it firsthand, obviously, with our community, people who tried to pivot three times over and just said, I don't really have anything here. I hate to say this, but people who probably weren't going to survive in the next five years, and it just kind of shortlined their survival path. And, and that could be good news. They maybe saved a lot of time and heartache. And there is just an exhaustion of not knowing what's next and how to speak to the market whether it was because of what happened, kind of the social unrest, people kind of froze, or because they don't know when they're actually going to be able to, you know, get together with people, the restaurant industry, for example. So it has been exhausting. And I am curious, as you just pointed out, like, when is that going to recover? When are we going to see the benefits of that as consumers, too? I don't really want everything from Amazon. I want that variety. I want those opportunities and those options. So it'll be, I'm curious to see when that all comes together. I want you to give our listeners, and I think I've painted a picture of who they are, but one piece of Maha advice. Like, what do you want to say to them? What do you want to leave them with as somebody who understands a little bit of the founder psyche and wants to kind of encourage them?
1: So I know you're listening to this podcast for, advice, and for insight. I hope I provided insight. I hope I haven't provided advice. And by that, I mean Mm -hmm. your story as a founder is your own. I am there to guide. I'm there to provide thoughts as an advisor or a board member. But ultimately, the decision on how to run the business is yours. So I'll give a quick anecdote, and then I'll shut up. I had a company... 15 years ago, which was going really, really well, like growing, 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 growing. And the CEO randomly called me up one day and said, we need to sell the business. And I said, why? She explained why the business in the next six months was gonna face immense headwinds, which none of us could have seen except for her, because she's in it every day, she's in it. So we're flying at a high level, not that high, but we're flying, let's say at a thousand feet, she's on the ground. She sees everything and is mapping out everything. So what I'm trying to say is, and we sold the company and things turned out really well, don't discount what you're seeing. And this, I guess, is advice. Get pieces of feedback from everyone around you. But ultimately, the decision is yours to live with based on your own experiences in the business.
0: That's that's great advice. And I think, again, given the 2020 and 2021. It's not over. Issues. I think it's good for people to be able to lean in their into their gut and say, I actually do know what's best. And all this outside, you can do it, might not be what I need. I may need to be able to assess based on the data and what I see in the future um, as the best course. So thank you for that. Before I let you go, we have something called our Fast Five. I'm just going to ask you five quick questions. It's a way to get to know you a little bit more and just tell me what comes to mind. So what is the number one trait you think an entrepreneur must possess? Drive. What's one app that you use in your business or for your your business schedule?
1: Twitter. It has become my news source.
0: Really? Okay. So so for news, like everything. So you kind of are getting all the updates on the news on the market. Yeah. Business news. Okay. If I'm picking one, that's it. That's a good one. What's the first task? And this is tricky because you're not a founder, but as your life got busy as a mom, I'll say it that way, who is you know, in charge of so much on the business side of things. What's the first task you hired out when you had a little bit of money? Driving. Drive. oh, good.
1: Having my, you yes. know, people Kids. picking up,
0: yes. That's a good one. Did you use one of the, is it skip hop? No, just. Just a person. Yes. A nanny driver. Got it. <laughs> and then uh, this is the, probably the most important question. Do you prefer Red Vines or Twizzlers?
1: So I thought about this question And I used to be a big candy freak. I've had to pull back on that. Both don't treat my stomach real well. So I'm going to say red vines, but I'm off them.
0: Uh, You're off of them. That's what happened. You hit hit
1: 50 and it's
0: just all (laughs) like it. Oh, yeah. No, I know. I know. I know. I know what happens. <laughs> I mean, I, I that's another podcast. But thank you for saying red vines. I happen to agree. Finally, somebody said red vines. And then this podcast is called Liberty for Her. Everything around our brand is, you know, liberating women to live into that entrepreneurial dream. What does liberty mean for you?
1: Freedom, right? We are fortunate enough to live in a country where that is everything. And mm again, on a daily basis where I see people who are born here and immigrants to this country be able to build things that they wouldn't have built. I wouldn't be where I am if my parents had me in Egypt and stayed in Egypt. Yeah, We are afforded so many luxuries in this country and we shouldn't take advantage of them, nor should we think that we should take them for granted.
0: Yeah. Amen to that. Maha, thank you so much for your wisdom, for your time. I appreciate it. And I know so many of our listeners will appreciate it. And I won't give out your number, but if anybody wants (laughs) to connect with you, they can reach out to me. (laughs) I'm sure there are lots of people who, as a result of this, are now rethinking what's my next best course of action in terms of raising money. And that's due to you sharing your time with us. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Liberty listeners, you heard all of it right here. We are excited for you to have this new information and see what you do with it. And until then, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Liberty Road is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. If you like what you've heard, please follow, rate, and review Liberty Road on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping your ventures. Liberty Road is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Joy Windham and music by Jordan Flower.